incredible co-star, co-host, Carol Van Zant Jones, and she has an incredible company, and she, you started it all on your own, correct? That's correct. And yes. if you want to just kind of get into a little bit of your backstory, maybe like your career backstory before sure. starting the company, I'd love to learn a little bit more about that too. Well, sure. Sure. Thank you for having me, first of all, Caroline. Mm -hmm. As a young child growing up, I had very strong women in my family. Um, my mother was reared, her mother passed away when she was just an infant, and so she was reared by her mother's sister. Her name was Aline McMahon, and Aline um, was born in 1900, I believe, 04, and um, she was a, a, a very bright, loving, a uh, young woman who excelled in the music industry, and she taught uh, music in the church choir, primarily the children's choir, and, um, and this was in Dallas. And um, anyway, and she got her master's degree as a young woman and then pursued her career teaching music to young children. That was something that women did not do especially those that were born in 1904. Yeah. Kind of out of the box. My mother and my father married. My father was from Fort Worth. And my father's family had strong women as well. His two sisters were both educators as well. One held a uh, PhD in chemistry and led the chemistry department at Texas Wesleyan. Wow. And um, the other was my aunt now, and she was the head of the library at Texas Wesleyan as well. She also um, taught library science at, cool. at TCU. So I come from a from a family that's heavy on strong women and strong educators. I grew up with this environment, and um, anyway, it was it was a, a fun a fun life as a child. I went to TCU and um, got a degree there. What did you study at TCU? Psychology okay. and business. Anyway, then I, um, I married and then had my children, both Curtis and then Anna. And um, luckily for me, I was able to stay at home with my children when they were young. And I consider that a privilege. As time went on um, and the kids grew up, um, life changed a bit, and I found myself in the midst of a divorce situation, and so I really needed to get back into the workforce. And so in doing so, I took on a job with a company that rented equipment to cities and municipalities, the oil and gas industry, and construction industry. Those were the primary focuses. Was that your first dabble in like oil and gas? Yes. And, okay. Wow. Yes. Okay. So, Knowing what you do now. That's yes. Wow. Okay. So I did that for a few years and learned that I really enjoyed the oil and gas industry. And my manager, the, the gentleman that hired me, whom I'm still friends with, he went on to other 
you know, avenues in his life. And as he did, then I realized that it was probably a good time to, to branch out and, and go solely into the oil and gas industry. So I gave my resume to a couple of gentlemen in the oil and gas industry that were very well connected. Mm -hmm. And um, with that resume, I landed a job that put me right smack dab in the middle of the oil and gas industry, selling water transfer and pit lining services. Then shortly after that, the oil and gas industry took a nosedive. And in 2009, the company I was working for closed their doors in the Barnett Shell. As they closed their doors, then that meant there were a lot of very talented and well-trained people that were kind of floating around in, in the region without work. And I had some customers that you know I had developed relationships with, and they were interested in some containment. At that time, it was hard to find the right kind of containment for the oil and gas industry because it needed to be easily transported and mm -hmm. it needed to be lightweight and durable. And anyway, I reached out to a friend whom um, I knew was in the industry from a tarpon awning perspective, visited with him and together we, you know, we put together some prototypes and tried a few things. As it turns out, he put together an amazing design and, um, and I got to put it out on location and try it out and do all kinds of fun things with it. And that launched what we call now VMATS. We continued on with that, serving our customers in the Barnett Shell. And then before we knew it, um, our customers were moving into the Eagleford Shell. As that happened, they invited us to join them, which was a huge honor. As we did that, we had to find ways to make that move. And so we bought some land in the Eagleford. We were actually working out of a container at first on this one little three acre lot. Well, I guess two and a half acre lot. Anyway, it's now, we've now built a building and a shop and we now have about 13 acres there. But nonetheless, it was, um, you know, just dirt. And actually, I remember scooping up a little spoonful of dirt and putting it in a Ziploc bag <laughs> and carrying it with me for about six months everywhere I went because that was the first dirt that I actually owned. But anyway, so then we started working in the Eagleford. That was some fun and wild times. Things were just going in all different kinds of directions. And um, Curtis, my son, he was finishing up at Trinity University about that time. So that was about 2012. And during the summers, Curtis and some of his buddies would work for us. But after he graduated, he jumped on board and, and came to work for us full time. So that was 2012. And then shortly after that, we had customers doing more work in the Permian Basin. I had resisted going to the Permian Basin because at that time, most of the emphasis in the oil and gas industry was in the Barnett and the Eagleford. But as the oil and gas prices rose, the Permian began to percolate, really. Mm -hmm. So then we found a shop in the Permian and opened up. And then almost immediately after that, we opened up another shop in Oklahoma. So we were blowing and going, you know, about 2014, we had... And did anyone else make 
anything similar to y'all? Did y'all get a patent? How did that kind of stuff Yes, work? Mark Matson got a patent. Okay. Um, he was the one that designed it. And um, I threw it out there and, came, you know, gave him feedback on it and such. But it was um, his design, but we we got the benefit of, of playing with it out in the field and trying this and mm -hmm. add a handle and the flaps need to go this way and the Velcro, the the part of the story I think he likes to tell too is that in designing this one of the things that has made it very easy for our employees to use because um, the containments are I mean they're huge and they break down and so when they're all rolled up and you know stored it's hard to tell what is you know by the different sizes mm -hmm. because you have to have different sizes to go under different equipment so the best way I knew to do this was to color code them. Well, of course, that color coding goes back into my years of stay-at-home mom because back at those days of my life, we color coded everything. Yeah, and you gotta be creative and get be, organized. You gotta yeah, get creative <laughs> and organized. And so, you know, I applied my some of my mommy skills <laughs> into the oil and gas industry, and so we color code. Um, a lot of things. 2014, we were blowing and going, and then there was a, another oil field crash. Um, and that was right after Oklahoma, after y'all got... Yeah, okay. well, we opened up the Oklahoma yard probably 2012-ish. Okay. Anyway, but 2014, um, the oil fields took a nosedive. So in 2015, we had idle assets and. Mm -hmm all regions, all four regions. And the one region I really wanted to open up was an East Texas, Louisiana region. So we decided this was probably a good time because there was plenty of talent in the region. And then we had assets. So that's a perfect time to take a leap of faith and open up a yard. We had some customers in that region that we're doing some work, not a lot, but some work. So we decided we would take that leap of faith. So we moved some assets, you know, pulled a little bit from mm -hmm. each region and moved it over there and opened up a new yard, hired some good, talented people. And um, then that yard started up. And so anyway, it has been a really big contributor to our bottom line. That's a fun story to tell in this whole picture because it was kind of a well it was clearly a, a leap of faith and where some some um companies would scale back we decided no we're not going to scale back we're just going to spread out so is there any competition out there because y'all made a really unique product yes we set the bar for the containment industry and i'm sure some people were like I want a piece of this. Yeah. <laughs> and they did. Yeah. And they do. And we had a really good time initially because there was very few competitors in in that space. But as it turns out now, there's plenty of competition. And so our prices are very competitive. We have to be very competitive with our service and our pricing on our service as well. And we have to always come up with something new. 
according to Forbes, two years ago, 15% of the industry is female. And then according to Google currently, 23% is female in the energy, oil, and gas industry. How do you think we can continue to increase? Because it sounds like you've brought a lot of creativity to the industry and great ideas that weren't there in the first place. And I think that's just something that needs to continue to happen. How would you think that that could continue to happen and continue to get that number to grow more? Well, that's a good question, Caroline. I am surprised that it is as high of a percentage as what you just said, 15 and tw- now 23%. Mm-hmm. Do you say that because of what you see out Because there? of my, uh, yes, mm-hmm. yes, because of my experiences. Do you think there's more like males in the leadership roles and, and maybe the, the numbers higher on the maybe not as leadership roles for females? That may be the case. Um, there are groups, um, Heart Energy is one that has um, a, they do a, a seminar and a convention specifically for women in the oil and gas industry, which cool. is very nice. And then they identify, they did this, I think the last two years, maybe even three years, and they'll identify some women leaders in the oil and gas industry. Another thing is, you know, just for women to step up on committees. The Permian Basin has several organizations, and when women join those organizations and and participate on those committees, then, yes, you see those women in the oil and gas industry. Typically, those committees um, are headed up by men and, and you know, the, the local people of the region. I think there are more women engineers. I know when I first started in the oil and gas industry, I was really quite a novelty showing up on location with the pink hard hat. And <laughs> that was not very common, <laughs> but now there are more women and usually there'll be more women engineers, which I applaud the women, especially the young women going through school and um, choosing uh, petroleum engineering. You know, you go girl. (laughs) So I do see more women in the frac vans and it's evolving. It definitely is evolving. And so I'm glad to to hear that's reported at 23%, but yes, we do need more. Um, So going kind of back into your industry, what are some challenges that new entrepreneurs might be facing as they enter the oil and gas and energy industry? New entrepreneurs will have challenges gaining that safety history that we, we spoke about earlier. And um, another big challenging factor in the oil and gas industry is that the fact that it is a very cyclical industry. In April of 2020, we saw oil prices drop as low as a negative $37 a barrel. People were having to pay someone to take and store oil for them. 2020 was probably one of the hardest years in the oil and gas industry, probably ever. I am really a a, a newcomer to the oil and gas industry. I've been in the industry since um, 2009, or actually 2008, but on my own Mm -hmm. in 2009. In talking with those that are my age or older and have made the oil and gas industry their career, they speak about 2020 as being some of 
the hardest times they have ever encountered. There were some pretty hard times in the 80s. There was a long, prolonged period of time when oil prices were very low, and that was very hard for the oil and gas industry. So one of the things that I think is really important for an entrepreneur is to build a business plan that can expand and contract. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, I mean, you need to be able to obviously expand as the market demands when they need more stuff and more people and more time. And the oil and gas industry will do that. And it it can be very, very demanding. Um, But then, and almost in an overnight way, it can shut down. Mm-hmm. And then here you are with all this stuff and all these people. So you have to build your plan in such a way that you can lay off people, sell off assets or whatever in order to keep afloat during those very lean times. Um, the lean times for us have been, well, they've been very lean, <laughs> but what we did and and I didn't realize this going into it. I didn't realize this really had to be this way. Prior to launching on my own in in the oil and gas industry, I was advised, don't go there. The oil and gas industry is so cyclical. It is so hard. And of course, you know, I just plunged in there and, and, and did it anyway. But what I learned is that when I saw the cycles cycling down, I paid attention and um, we quit hiring. We quit buying new stuff. Mm -hmm. We just pretty much put the brakes on, on expenses. And you almost have to do that. We do that. And then also, hopefully you don't have to do layoffs, but ultimately we have had some layoffs in our history. And then of course, when things pick up, we call those people back to come to work for us. In the downturn in 2014, it was 2015, that's when we opened up the East Texas yard. So instead of cutting back, I think that was a time when we were able to let natural attrition happen. So our our team, um, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of work. So people would go to other industries where they could get more hours or whatever. So through natural attrition, we lost some people, um, employees that way, which helped our bottom line. But we also were able to spread our assets out to a brand new region and start something new. And um, that was just fun to do in a, you know, kind of a depressing downturn time. It's fun to do something new and, in, you know, and creative. And so we started up in East Texas with just a skeleton crew. And we helped them out from our Fort Worth yard. You know, we would... Um, move people back and forth when they had jobs that needed extra people. But I think the real skinny, if I had to drill down to what's the biggest advice, and that is a new startup company or any company in the oil and gas industry needs to be scalable. It needs to be able to build up and to contract based upon the market. Was there ever a time in your company's life that you thought, what have I done? Or I... I should get out of this or I can't do this. And how did you power through that? Well, 2020, um, when the oil prices dropped down to negative 37, I really was in that 
where do we go from here now? Mm-hmm. There was a lot of talk about, you know, there isn't work. There isn't very much work. Mm-hmm. And how do you keep your doors open? How do you stay afloat? And, you know, we had scaled down to the bare minimum. And I kept saying, can't we carve back some more? Can't we, you know, and there's like, well, if we do that, then we really need to close these doors. One thing that we did do during this 2020 year is we pulled our employees out of our Oklahoma region, although we, uh, we still have a yard in Oklahoma, but we don't have it manned by employees at this time. We are seeing some more activity in Oklahoma. We are starting to get some calls in that region. And so um, I can see that we might, you know, open that up again. But that's part of that scaling down. You know, there were other regions. And if it had gone on any longer, you know, it would have been the next region and the next region. And so ultimately, it's a matter of, um, you know, you just find ways to scale back. It got very difficult in mm-hmm. 2020. Very. And what about earlier on in the more infancy of the company? Was there ever a time when you were just at my wits' end? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Especially during the beginning, it began to grow. I, I really didn't envision this company to be as big as it was. At one point in time, we had over 120 people employed, and I never anticipated that. There were times when I felt like I had bitten off more than I could chew because there was just so much demand and I didn't know how to keep up with it. One of the things that I think is critical is to have managers in place that are very capable and very committed individuals. It takes time to weed through people. And I also have had to learn, learn the hard way, that with a startup company, There's all kinds of things that a a manager would need to be able to do. They have to wear a bazillion different hats. And um, that is a gift and a talent. But that same person may not be happy in an established company's management Mm -hmm. program. So where a person may shine in your startup organization, there may not be a place for them in a mature organization. What do you all have it for the future of VZ Environmental? Well, that's a good question. Every time I am asked that question, I look into an imaginary crystal ball <laughs> and it's not there. <laughs> I do see, you know, I've always said I can't, I really can't see out much more than six months. Mm-hmm. And that's always been the case because the industry is so cyclical. It is very difficult to do that. But I do think that the industry and the, the price of oil and gas right now are on the rise and are steady. And I do think that we are looking and embracing um, a strong 2021. And I'm so thankful for that because 2020 was absolutely brutal. We're always trying to keep our ear to the ground and learn more about how we can be better. What is something that you'd like to see um, or a difference that the insurance industry could make as an improvement? In the insurance industry, 
there are so many disclaimers. I have to have insurance, mm-hmm. but I feel very uneducated many times on what I have, the policies yeah. I do have. When there's an accident or there's flood damage or there's any number of things, I think this and that are covered. Yeah. And then I go back to the policy and it's like, mm, well, not exactly. So that's a piece that I think is really hard for a person not in the industry. And it's an industry I don't really want to know a lot about. Yeah, no, I get <laughs> but it. But I yeah. have to know mm-hmm. a lot about it. It puts insurance agents in a difficult predicament because they have to sell a product and the person that they're selling it to really doesn't want to know about it, but they really need mm-hmm. to know about it. So like the it, education so. aspect, the communication yeah. aspect, mm-hmm. and then really just kind of like the knowledge on so that you're not having to wonder, am I covered for this crap? Mm-hmm. Got right. it. Okay. Right. And then obviously when you're saying like your umbrella pricing, maybe more education on, yeah. hey, by the way, the surge is 52 to 160% right now. Yeah. Um, so you don't get those surprises on like your your renewal yeah. the day before yeah. kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. 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 The day before renewal. Carol, thank you so much for your you're time. Welcome. And how can people get connected to you? Oh, um, you can go to our website. It's vzenvironmental.com. Awesome. Well, Carol, thank you so much for your time.